Good morning. I'm Jason Marzak. I'm the uh, director of the Latin America Economic Growth Initiative here at the Adrian Arsht Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. First of all, thank you all of you for joining us for this public on-the-record call on implications of a potential rollback and aspects of U.S. policy toward Cuba. With the expected announcement of undoing some of the policies enacted over the last couple of years, the purpose of our 45-minute call today is to look just one day before this potential announcement at the security, economic, and human rights implications of a policy change. Now, our center has been quite active on Cuba since we opened our doors three and a half years ago. We put out one of the most comprehensive nationwide bipartisan polls on U.S. attitudes toward Cuba uh, months before the announcement to begin normalization of relations. We then put out another poll among voters in the heartland at the end of the first year of normalization. And we have put out additional publications on the Cuban economy, how to grow it to benefit everyday Cubans, and also the path to Cuba rejoining international financial institutions. Getting Cuba right is important for the U.S., for Cubans, and for our broader relationships across the hemisphere. For the past two years, Americans and Cubans have prospered from a greater opening with the island nation. Business transactions and investments have blossomed. Private sector jobs in the United States and Cuba have grown. From the security front, after 54 years of severed relations, the United States and Cuba are collaborating to adjust challenges ranging from stemming the flow of illegal drugs to disaster prevention and preventing the spread of diseases like Zika. Barriers to freedom and human rights are still a big problem in Cuba. We recognize this is indispensable and must be reinforced. But the question is how best to affect change. For us, it's engagement, not failed policies of ill-fated attempts at isolation. President Trump is soon expected to announce a partial rollback in U.S. engagement with the island. This will come as an overwhelming majority of Americans don't agree that scaling back relations is the right approach. The American people support a policy of engagement with Cuba, a view that has only increased in the two and a half years since the normalization began. Now, three years ago, 56% of Americans favored changing U.S.-Cuba policy, according to our poll at the Atlantic Council. And now today, a morning council poll finds 65% support maintaining the policy changes put in place since December 2014. And even in Miami-Dade Miami County, over 6 in 10 Cuban Americans want the full embargo to be lifted, uh, according to findings from Florida International University. Now, here today to discuss the business security and human rights implications of a potential rollback, I'm delighted to welcome three experts on the subjects. Uh, with me, actually, in the room is Brigadier G General David McGinnis, and also joining us by phone is Jose Miguel Vivanco and Dr. Emily Morris. I will introduce brief uh, each of them briefly. Brigadier General McGinnis is a retired com veteran uh, combat infantryman with distinguished careers in and out of uniform. He is also a member of the American Security Project's Consensus for American Security. He remains engaged as a thought leader on national strategy and defense, having recently published an op-ed in Politico on the importance of Cuba for U.S. national security. He also recently signed a letter alongside four military officers urging the U.S. government to continue its engagement with the country. The Brigadier General last served the United States as a Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Affairs in the Department of Defense from 2009 to 2012 and was acting assistant secretary for 14 months during that period. And among other things, he was recently in Cuba uh, just in and this, just this past March. So welcome, Brigadier General. It was delighted to have you. Thank you. We also have on the phone Jose Miguel Vivanco. Jose Miguel is director of the Americas Division at, the, at Human Rights Watch and an expert on Cuba and Latin America. 
Before joining the leading in human rights organization, Jose Miguel worked as an attorney for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights at the Organization of American States. With an expansive career, he has served as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and also at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. Jose Miguel, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. And also on the call joining us actually from, uh, from Havana uh, is Dr. Emily Morris. Uh, Dr. Morris is an associate fellow at the UCL Institute of the Americas in London, University College of London, where she has explored the effects of U.S.-Cuban normalization for the island's economy, as well as the macroeconomic risks of Cuban economic adjustment. For 13 years, she was a specialist at the Economist Intelligence Unit, where she provided forecasting and advisory services uh, on Cuba and the Latin America region. She is one of the, I think, what I, I think of her as one of the foremost experts on the Cuban economy, having studied it for so many years. So, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today from Havana. Thank you. So let's get started. I'm going to ask a few rounds of questions to speakers and then open up to questions from everyone on the phone. We have 45 minutes. Uh, we will take questions and the answer and the, in, according to when people are in the queue. So if you want to get yourself in the queue even now, uh, press star one to do that. Um, first question I'm going to ask to Brigadier General McGinnis, um, partly because he's sitting right here next to me. But let's, let's start off here with the big picture. You were in Cuba just this past March. What was your takeaway from a security perspective, or even more generally, of the effects of the openness in U.S.-Cuba policy thus far? I, I found uh, really that I was dramatically surprised um, uh, from the first time I got off, off, the, uh, off the aircraft till, uh, till the time we left. Um, it, it, Latin America and Cuba uh, I've known for some time is a is a, is a separate theater of engagement, uh, both militarily, military and political, uh, for the United States and and for other major powers in the world. Um, and I'm sure that the uh, other members of the panel will discuss those elements, but it, it is definitely is. Of course, uh, I went down there with uh, five other colleagues, uh, retired uh, naval, marine, and army uh, flag officers. Um, our first time, our first visit, we went down at the invitation of the Cuban government, um, and um, we had basically no handling at all. We were free to do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, we asked which meetings would be set up with, uh, with which elements of the Cuban government, and, uh, and they were very gracious in doing that. Um, we had a very open dialogue. But I take back the first few minutes when I was on the ground driving into Havana. And after 50-some years of embargo, I expected a lot of signs of economic disaster, which would impact socially on the people. I didn't see that. I saw very proud people. I saw people who were proud of what they have and what they own um, and, and what they're trying to do uh, to make their life better. Um, it was obvious from the start. It became more obvious every day. Uh, quite frankly, I haven't seen that in other parts of the world uh, and in other parts of Latin America. I was really impressed with that. Um, the, from a, a, a national security standpoint, um, I came back with the idea that um, uh, Cuba and the Cuban government, as it exists today, is extremely open uh, and anxious to dialogue with the United States and work with the United States. And there are a number of examples of that 
um, dating back actually before uh, uh, before 9/11, or at, at starting at around 9/11. Um, and the other thing that surprised me was how resourceful the Cuban people and the Cuban government is getting around the embargo, uh, even the political aspects of the embargo. As an example, since 9-11, they've been working with us through Interpol, which isn't affected by the embargo. Uh, so it all didn't start, uh, it all didn't start with, uh, with the Obama opening. Uh, it's been going on for some time. But since the Obama opening, there's a number of, um, uh, of agreements that have been set um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, quite a bit of dialogue up until this January has been going on. Thank, thanks, Brigadier General. Emily, now let's turn to, to business economics. You're in Havana right now, and you've spent, as I mentioned at the outset, a number of years studying the ins and outs of the, of the Cuban economy, and I think, frankly, you know it like few others. From your perspective, how has the economy changed in the last couple of years, and specifically, what are some of the changes you've seen as related to more U.S. openness? Okay, well, since the opening, there's been a dramatic change, particularly here in Havana, um, in terms of the level of economic activity. It's, it's really um, remarkable how much more people are moving, how much more people are doing at their houses, how much people that you know, it's really dynamized the economy here. It was, um, which of course I've known since a special period when there was very little moving and so on. But the last couple of years, even though there's been a recovery since a special period, the last couple of years have been the acceleration. It is heavily concentrated in Havana, um, and it's heavily concentrated among the people, particularly in the private sector, who are catering for the new influx of, of U.S. visitors. Um, and so I think what, when you look at the effects on the economy, you really need to get outside Havana and to look at other sectors to see um, the broader picture. But also in the GDP growth figure last year, we actually had a slight contraction, which when you're in Havana, you just think, well, that just can't be right because there's so much more happening here than there was before. Um, and it's happening not just in terms of economic activity, it's cultural activity, it's an openness, it's an excitement about the possibilities that's going to happen. Now, clearly at the moment, there's a, there's, um, you know, people are worried. People are worried who are engaged in the activity and people who are worried even who um, aren't engaged in it but kind of feel that it, opened up possibilities for the future. So there's a kind of a nervousness about um, what happens next. The rest of the economy has been hit in the last couple of years um, by the uh, problems in Venezuela. And in the middle of last year, there was a non-delivery or a reduced delivery of Venezuelan oil. Um, and so there was a reduction in energy consumption. So you've got an economy which is doing two different things at the same time. There's one that's in stagnation and then there's the other one that's very dynamic. Um, but what's happened with the dynamic sector, it's also led um, an extensive review of institutional arrangements, an extensive discussion about where we go from here. In all sectors, they're talking about how to accommodate the market within their model. And we know it's a centralized model, it's a state-led model, but it's always had um, parts of it which operate outside the state system. And now that part has, has grown enormously. So you can see a kind of an institutional change, a change in the discussion. I'm you know, sharing time with academics. And there's a, a very lively discussion, not just among academics, but even among um, local governments and, and state administration. So that's the kind of change that you've seen. So we've had a contraction in the last year. We've had a slowdown the previous year um, in terms of the macroeconomy. But we've had this boom in terms of possibilities for the private sector. 
Um, so that's, that's what it looks like for the last couple of years. I have to say, um, when the previous speaker said, you know, that people look well or whatever, the, the state of the infrastructure is still terrible. And the, particularly the housing problem is terrible. So you have now um, many houses being done up by people who are going to rent them out. And they're juxtaposed with these houses which are continually, I mean, they're in a terrible condition. And after the rains we had last week, we had some more collapses in Havana. So you've got this kind of dualism um, in, in terms of, as well in terms of the infrastructure. Thank you, Emily. And I want to get back uh, to the effect of a, uh, of a rural background, specifically on entrepreneurs and startups. You mentioned that the houses have been refurbished for renting out to tourists, and, and also that's the Venezuela question. But I want to move on to Jose Miguel. Uh, Jose Miguel, I'm, I'm, uh, of course, one of the, 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 the paramount uh, issues and concerns is the human rights situation in Cuba, um, which I mentioned from, from the outset, and, and uh, uh, this continues to be uh, uh, very much of, of great concern to, to all of us. How have things evolved uh, from that perspective since the beginning of the rapprochement? Well, um, well, first of all, I think we need to we need to uh, state uh, the obvious, and the obvious is that uh, Cuba is run by a military dictatorship, and uh, that uh, Cuba remains uh, a highly repressive country uh, even today. Um, it's a country where there is a tremendous uh, level of uh, censorship no free no free press uh free speech is um is uh, is not allowed um there is no independent judiciary uh tremendous concentration of power uh no due process guarantee the government normally use uh, uh mechanisms like uh, uh a dangerous uh, uh social dangerous activities to repress uh in cuba um, the Cuban people for uh, what they call pre-criminal activities. Uh, there are no independent unions in Cuba, no, no chance to, uh, to engage in collective bargaining um, uh, for workers. Um, in other words, the, the, record, the human rights record of Cuba is, um, is uh, in, one word, uh, in one word, deplorable. And um, uh, however, um, I will say that uh, there have been some improvements, improvements um, in several areas. Um, actually, prior to 2014, including the uh, relaxation of uh, travel restrictions and the uh, reduction in the number of uh, political prisoners in Cuba, the government's uh, uh, Usually, other repressive practices remain largely unchanged, as I said before. But um, but um, the Cuban government relies less now than in previous year on past, uh, you know, on long-term uh, prison sentences uh, to 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 punish uh, its uh, critics. Uh, Short-term arbitrary arrest of uh, human rights uh, defenders and independent journalists and uh, uh, and activists have uh, actually increased in recent years. Now, uh, to answer your questions with regard to, you know, the record of the Cuban government after the establishment or normalization of um, diplomatic relations uh, with Cuba, I think that um, 
there have been some additional improvements. Um, there is a small but very dynamic group of uh, people in the island, uh, bloggers, uh, human rights uh, activists, uh, academics, uh, who have been pretty resourceful in, uh, in using limited, uh, limited spaces available to them to, to speak out and, uh, and to generate some, some debate. But that space is still very, very limited. And, uh, and their, their activities, their reporting and discussions are you know, only reaching a very small portion of the population in Cuba. Just a, qu a quick follow-up there. So one of the uh, potential reasons for rolling back uh, uh, relations very well could be in the name of human rights. So from your perspective, what is the likelihood that a scaling back of the relationship from the U.S. side could in fact pressure the Cuban government uh, to enact human rights changes? Look, our sense is that reversing the, uh, the Obama administration's uh, uh, changes in, uh, in with regard to uh, U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba is not going to improve uh, respect for human rights uh, on the island. Um, the uh, the uh, unilateral sanctions um, uh, over more than half a century uh, imposed by Washington has been uh, a total failure. And uh, to expect uh, different results from a policy that has not uh, have any impact in terms of uh, uh, serious significant um, improvement of human rights and, and democracy in Cuba is, um, is, uh, is, is highly unrealistic. Um, the main issue is that um, the policy of isolation, the policy of unilateral sanctions um, promoted by Washington is uh, adamantly rejected by the rest of the world and, um, and end up isolating Washington on this, uh, on this issue. Um, and uh, Cuba is not isolated from the rest of Latin America, Europe, and Africa or Asia. And um, uh, to, ex to pretend that by going back to the policy of isolation, uh, you will get uh, any improvements on human rights in Cuba, I think is, um, is, uh, is ludicrous and it's not serious. Uh, the only chance to really improve rec the record of the Cuban of the Cuban government is by um, dismantling the embargo as a precondition, and uh, and to have uh, uh, the U.S. government as well as European and Latin democracies uh, exercising multilateral pressure, not obviously in the form of um, multilateral embargo, but it's just a diplomatic pressure to expose the record of the Cuban government on human rights. And, um, but the precondition for to do that is by is to uh, fully abandon uh, the policy of um, of isolation that is, um, as I said before, rejected by the rest of the world. Thanks, Jose. I want to move back to Brigadier General McGinnis um, and the security question. The U.S. and Cuba, um, as you mentioned, Brigadier General, in your opening remarks, uh, have been collaborating uh, up until uh, late January. Uh, to address a variety of security challenges ranging from uh, emergency relief, counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, 
from your perspective, why is cooperation with Cuba uh, on a number of fronts, why is that important to direct U.S. national security interests? Because as I also mentioned, and uh, I want to thank Jose Miguel for, for setting up uh, something important with his last comments uh, about the embargo, but uh, as I mentioned before, Latin America is a theater for us. Um, and our perspective, our small group came back and saw that Cuba could be the center of gravity, could very well be the center of gravity for the changes that are currently occurring um, and, the, uh, and the trauma that's currently ongoing in Latin America in at least three countries um, because of their connections, their expertise, all is demonstrated, as, as Jose Miguel said, um, because they're not isolated, they're engaged. They're engaged around the world with everybody but us. And as an opportunity to have um, uh, uh, the center of gravity 90 miles off our shore to help us manage and work um, our objectives, our mutual objectives in Latin America, which is stability and prosperity and peace, um, is, is the principal reason why we need to stay engaged and increase that engagement with Cuba. Uh, it is, uh, and, and, and it's, it's been demonstrated already over the, the recent years uh, uh, with uh, everybody from our United States Coast Guard uh, to the Federal Bureau of Investigation um, through four particular national security and law enforcement working groups, international law enforcement working groups that we've established by MOU with the Cuban uh, government uh, covering nine different areas, from counterterrorism to human trafficking. Uh, the other thing is that we share. We share one of the major bodies of water in the world uh, with this country. And they have demonstrated and appear very willing to part and are partnering with us uh, to make sure that we keep that area safe, safe environmentally, safe criminally, and safe from a national security perspective. Every single Coast Guard, Coast Guard cutter in the Caribbean is linked with every single Border Patrol uh, ship and boat in the, Cuban, uh, in the Cuban Border Patrol, which is their Coast Guard, performs their Coast Guard function in addition to other things. Uh, not just on, on an ice call, every day. The, the frequencies are open. They're talking. Um, so as we get into uh, the importance of Latin America, look at Venezuela. Look at, look at what's going on in Mexico. Uh, look at what's going on to, in efforts to finalize uh, uh, peace in Colombia. Um, Cuba can very well be a player with us in every one of these issues, from diplomatic aspect to the intelligence aspect to the national security aspect to the human social aspect. Um, so it's, it, it, to us, to the, to the, to the, to the six of us who, 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 who made the trip, and had a chance to discuss in detail and, and give a lot of thought and put them in a couple pieces of paper. One was the Politico um, op-ed piece. The other was a, a letter to uh, General McMaster, which was personally delivered to him by, um, by a close friend. Um, we've uh, made, our, made this position extremely clear. Um, as the, uh, the other challenge is that um, uh, there's other people that want to play in this uh, in this, in this arena too, and uh, I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, uh, I think the big thing that we came across is that uh, reality is that 
all of us and many of our colleagues have come to learn that imposing our norms and processes on societies distract from our strategic interests rather than support them. We've learned that freedom and prosperity have different meanings and, 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 and create different expectations across societies. And the same is true with Cuba as it is with Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and it is long past overdue that the United States cease unilaterally dictating who rules and how, how they rule uh, communities unless the uh, International Association of Nations, the United Nations, uh, establishes a standard. And so from a military and a political standpoint, uh, uh, that's why we support withdrawing the embargo. Now, uh, thank you, Brigadier General McGinnis. Uh, Emily, I want to turn back to you and, and, and Havana. You recently wrote that a hard U.S. line on Cuba could hurt emerging entrepreneurs, actually more than the state. Uh, and in fact, across Cuba, the uh, the number of self-employed is, is in the startup world is on the rise. Now, of course, we don't know what will be announced, um, but from a broader perspective, what could be the effect of a rollback in U.S.-Cuba engagement for specifically for those really pivotal Cuban entrepreneurs and, and Cuban startups? Okay, well, I think, I mean, you could, you, you'd see it almost immediately. If there was a reduction, if there were a reduction in the number of U.S. businesses, that would have a, um, an immediate impact on a lot of businesses in Havana. So in the short term, that would have an impact. I, I, I don't know exactly. We don't know what, what the changes might be, but of course the the most um, visible change that came from the, norm the movement towards normalization was the uh, far greater number of visitors. Um, so I think uh, you would have a lot of people who, whose income would fall um, dramatically. And although, as we know, the Cuba, Cuba has this um, social safety net and there's nobody going to die, um, a lot of people would find themselves destitute, I would think. Not because uh, it's, it's not just the self-employed, but it's the people who are informally employed by the self-employed, which is a much larger number of people. Um, and those people, some, some of them are working full-time, some of them are supplementing their state incomes in that way. And so you can see that it will have a huge ripple effect on the rest of the economy. Um, having said that, that the, of course, the, the U.S. visitors aren't, aren't, still aren't the majority. They're, they're quite heavily concentrated in Havana, but they're, they're not the majority. And so there is the rest of the um, tourist market those people would suddenly find that the, the price of accommodation would fall, which has risen dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, so you know, it would be easier for them, and there would be an increase in, in the number of them we could expect as well um, to slightly compensate. But um, I think in terms of people's confidence in the future, in terms of their willingness to invest, um, that would have a, a palpable effect as well. Um, so, so the, the effect on the economy as a whole wouldn't be that disastrous because, in fact, the U.S. sanctions are still in place, and the U.S. the effect of the U.S. particularly their um, the way in which the sanctions affect third country businesses in contemplating business in Cuba. Um, you know, there hasn't been a huge increase because people, businesses, foreign businesses, are still wary of engagement in Cuba. So, in that sense. That wouldn't change immediately. It would have a, it would possibly frighten off those who are beginning to feel their way towards the, the Cuban market. Um, so yeah, I, I think you would see some of the, the self-employed also pay taxes, but the payment of taxes isn't 
as developed as the Cuban government would like. In other words, a lot of the activity is informal and, and avoiding taxes. Um, so at the moment, the effect is probably, would probably be less than it would be five years down, down the line when the Cuban government will be more dependent on the tax of the private sector. Mm. But I think, as you mentioned, the outset, that, that, the, that the entrepreneurs and startups would, would, would feel that kind of in a very immediate sense. They would feel it immediately, in, in, and, and as I say, you know, their prices would have to come down. Clearly, the taxi drivers here, who are, who are really having a bonanza time, would, would have a more difficult time. But they actually, you know, I do hope that they've um, put something aside. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it'd be taxi drivers and people with casas particulares and the, the private rented houses and the, the restaurants that would feel the, the impact straight away. But it's not, as I say, it's not the whole of their market. There still is a market, but prices would come down. Mm -hmm. uh, Jose, I want to go back, go go back, go back to you. Um, going forward, what do, what do you see, looking longer term? As as you mentioned this briefly in your last response, but I'd love for you to to flush that a little bit more. What do you see as the most effective way to influence the Cuban government's position on on human rights? Um, look, very very briefly. Um, ultimately change and improvement um, on the human rights record of Cuba uh, will be the um, result of the work and the activity and the pressure uh, um, of Cuban people and the Cubans uh, in the island. Uh, are, they are the ones who are entitled to fundamental freedoms and rights uh, that unfortunately they can exercise today. And, uh, and they are the ones who ultimately will bring change um, and improvement uh, and, and democratic change in Cuba. Uh, but in order to do that, they need the right conditions. And the, the rules of a game today are not sufficient for them to, to, um, to press the Cuban government for change. Um, because uh, they are living under essentially a dictatorship. So the, the international community has a fundamental role to play. Uh, but in order to be effective, to have impact, you need to develop a multilateral consensus, at least among democratic governments, who cares about fundamental values and freedoms and cares about promoting those values and freedoms all over the world because those values are universal and are not um, uh, and, and the Cubans uh, deserve to enjoy those um, those freedoms and and, and, and rights um, but uh, restoring restrictions on travel and and commerce uh, are unlikely to lead to improvements in Cuba uh, because uh, is uh, this type of unilateral, unilateral um, actions by Washington is perceived um, by everybody else as imposing indiscriminate um, uh, hardship on the Cuban population as a whole. Um, and it also historically has provided the Cuban government with an excuse for its uh, domestic failures uh, also a pretext for its uh, repressive uh, policies and also a way to garner 
sympathy abroad um, with governments that might otherwise uh, have been willing to to condemn the country's uh, repressive uh, practices and policies. Jose Miguel, again, we're going to have a final question for the Brigadier General and for Emily, and then we'll open up to questions for, from all of you. So again, press star one uh, to get yourself in the queue. There's uh, 150 or so people on this call, so uh, we won't get to all the questions, so uh, whoever presses star one quicker will we'll get to yours. Um, Brigadier General, in a piece you wrote last month in Politico, you warn of U.S. adversaries like Russia getting an upper hand with new limitations placed on cooperation with Cuba. How do you see this potentially playing out? Uh, well, it already is, uh, to a certain extent, mainly uh, because of uh, the lack of activity uh, and engagement uh, since January with, uh, between our government and, uh, and, and our Cuban counterparts. Um, we've had, uh, as I mentioned in the Politico article, uh, uh, Soviet Union has already started trying to make up the gap in uh, petroleum imports uh, to Cuba that have fallen off dramatically uh, with the chaos in, in Venezuela. Um, Venezuela was uh, a major, major contributor um, until recently, um, economically, uh, especially with providing oil in exchange on a barter, on a barter uh, uh, deal uh, for medical services and other things with the Cubans. Uh, and um, the Soviet Union has already stepped in. We already know that, that China is, holds the, uh, the, the largest uh, foreign debt uh, from the Cuban government and is its largest trade partner. Um, so those, those steps have already moved forward. Uh, the surprising thing is that uh, even with the relationships with Venezuela and China, um, they haven't gone as far as I, I really thought they would or they could. And I think part of that uh, is, uh, is the Cubans, is the Cuban government not wanting to, uh, uh, wanting to have a balanced foreign policy to the best extent they can, uh, hoping uh, that, um, that we will step forward and, uh, and do the right thing. Uh, the, um, we just saw last week uh, a big announcement where the Panamanian government has finally recognized uh, uh, China, mainland China. Um, there are two other uh, major uh, Chinese uh, initiatives in, in, in South America that are ongoing now. Um, and I would expect that uh, both China and, uh, and the Soviet Union, Russia rather, are vying uh, in uh, playing very actively in, uh, in Venezuela. Um, so as we, if we would step back, um, that would uh, kind of take the hope away from the Cuban government that there, you know, would, uh, there was uh, gonna be uh, reproachment and uh, and obviously, be, they would be forced towards uh, towards the two eager adversaries of the United States in our own backyard. Um, it'll happen economically. Um, I don't see where the Soviet Union has to come back and build and put military bases in and listening posts and all that stuff, because today we do all that with technology. We don't need a physical presence on the ground close to our adversaries. Uh, but um, uh, I do see uh, a major push. Uh, uh, they they are a market. They're a market for products uh, 
from both uh, Russia and, uh, and and China, and uh, that'll uh, both of those countries have the resources to uh, to provide the loans to allow them to purchase uh, purchase their, their their items and equipment. Uh, conversely, it's going to further isolate us because uh, one of the discussions I had with a, a member of Congress uh, who was concerned about airline security. Uh, turned around when I said, well, the reason that they don't have the proper screening equipment is they bought the screening equipment from the Chinese and they can't buy it from us because of the embargo. So that's just one example of how things are uh, are heading and, uh, and that's how I envision this thing playing out economically. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Emily, last question to you before we go to uh, the questions in the queue. Uh, just going off of, of the Brigadier General's point here on, on kind of what other countries might increasingly step in, uh, from the economic perspective, Cuba, the Cuban economy is beginning to think, feel, or will increasingly feel the effects of the economic uh, collapse in, in Venezuela, a country with which uh, Cuba has become uh, uh, more and more reliant upon. From your perspective, who who would who could who could come in to uh, increasingly uh, fill uh, some of that space for the Cuban government? Who will Cuba increasingly look to as partners uh, from an economic perspective in the years ahead? if not the United States? Well, yes, as the previous speaker said, uh, Russia and China are definitely in there that the Cubans have been talking to. And the Cubans are very um, aware and I think finally have, well, they know the lesson. They know that they were too dependent on the, the United States once and then too dependent on the Soviet Union and then too dependent on Venezuela. They've learned the lessons, I think, for now. Um, these things keep repeating themselves, but they're very, very anxious to diversify their trading partners. And I think you're correct in, t in saying, I mean, China's been offering credit for Cuban imports from China for a long time, and they, they actually say, you know, we would like to buy from other places, but we can't because we can't get the trade credit credits from other places. So, you know, they're, they're anxious to diversify their sources of imports and their, their trade partners. So really diversification is the thing. So they'll have military people, military dele delegations coming from Russia and from China and from Vietnam and from, you know, anywhere they can um, because they want to spread their, their, um, their relations, both military, I imagine, though that's not my area, but certainly economically they're trying to spread. Um, the negotiation of the Paris Club bet was very important. Um, move in that direction. It was, there was an agreement at the end of 2015 and the, the bilateral agreements with each of the members of the, pilot, of the um, Paris Club were, were agreed last year. So Cuba's now in a position where it should begin to have more access to official financing. And I think this is going to make a critical difference to their ability to modernize their infrastructure. And if the United States isn't in um, isn't involved there, then of course they're going to get infrastructure from other places, which will mean that they, they adopt the technologies of other places. I mean, that's evident, and certainly there's, there's a, the EU presence um, has increased here. Um, and as I say, they're trying to diversify beyond. So Vietnam is also an important partner as well. They've got Middle Eastern partners that they're negotiating with. I mean, in fact, if you look at all of the oil exporters, they've been talking to all of them. Um, but if you look at Havana has the, a huge number for the size of the country, the, the diplomatic presence here is enormous because, of course, Cuba's been playing a big part in what used to be known as the non-aligned movement or the Group of 77. So they have an um, enormous web of diplomatic contacts. They're very, very active in that area, and they're trying to convert those into economic um, relations as well. They're very active trying to do that. And um, 
And in a way, if the U.S. backs off, I think that will give new impetus to that effort. To some extent, that effort, it's been continuing over the last couple of years, but the urgency is increased by both the loss of Venezuela and the possible um, pullback from the United States. Great. Thank, thank you very much, Emily. We're going it's, it's, to extend the call just a, f a few minutes, if that's okay with everybody, uh, maybe just uh, three, three, three minutes here so we can get two questions in. First one, I want to go to uh, uh, a friend of the Atlantic Council, uh, Ambassador Alec Watson, who is a former uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs and, and currently with, with Hills and Company. Uh, Alex, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Quick question to our excellent speakers here. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that the U.S. government might prohibit any kind of contact with any element of the Cuban society that is affiliated with the armed forces there and what, kind of, what that actually means and what kind of impact that would have? Thanks. Uh, this is Dave McGinnis. I think it would... Uh it would eliminate, uh, require, uh, uh, first of all, eliminate all our existing intel contacts that we have with them um, that generate uh, product from uh, throughout uh, the world where they're, they're, they're operating, uh, which would require us to invest uh, in, in not having them as a partner anymore, uh, require us to invest dramatically. Uh, in addition, it's going to expand the demand on our Coast Guard, uh, our shrinking Coast Guard in the, uh, in, the in the Caribbean, because they won't have the uh, they won't have the, uh, the Cuban assistance to count on. It's also uh, going to increase the potential for environmental man-made environmental disasters for the same reasons. Uh, I could go on and on, but there's a lot of negative, and I don't see a single positive. Um, I know around the world since the end of the Cold War, we have 68 ongoing engagements, mostly through the National Guard, a state partnership program, but many of them uh, also with active, uh, active forces, uh, particularly Navy and Marine Corps. Um, and this is the process that helps change thinking of governments and people. And I've seen it impact, and I, I'm very confident that, that if, we're, if this is allowed to continue, we'll see change as... Uh, Jose Miguel said, we'll see change, maybe not as fast as we want, but we'll see change in Cuba. Thanks for your general. Emily, do you want to address Alex's question from an economic perspective? Uh, well, the disengagement on, on official um, contacts in terms of with the ministries of, well, particularly the Ministry of Foreign Trade and International Cooperation, well, clearly, I mean, it will put an end to the expansion of um, the opportunities that have, have been developing. So we've seen the, the kind of special cases of telecoms and the restoration of um, direct communications and all of those things that have been happening bit by bit by conversation, by working the way around the rules that can't be changed in US um, sanctions, by looking for opportunities as well, because what you've seen is, um, if you like, you've had entrepreneurial people have been coming in from the US and exploring how they could maybe work in the field of pharmaceuticals or in the field of agricultural exports and so on. And they're very small things at the moment that you need to maintain the official contact in order to create the, or to create the conditions, the legal conditions, the administrative conditions and so on on both sides, because both sides have restrictions. Of course, we know that Cubans have restrictions as well on, on uh, private enterprise and on anything that they think is national security sensitive and so on. So you have to get Cuban permission, you have to, have to negotiate your way around um, existing U.S. sanctions. That can only be done by official contacts. 
Thanks, Emily. Uh, next question. Uh, uh, next question from Noor uh, uh, Ganus from Lenovo Health. Hi, hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, this is Nora Gamas from El Nuevo Herald and the Miami Herald. So let me came out clarify. Um, so my question is for Emily. I, I guess she's in Havana, and I would like to, to know what the Cubans are concerned most about these policy change. I mean, the people you're talking to, you know, where their worries, and also if you're talking to someone like in the government or you know, in a university where they're saying. Uh, so just the uh, general, what are their worries about what might happen tomorrow? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I've been talking at the moment to, to a lot of people in the universities, and they're clearly concerned that um, the great flourishing of uh, bilateral contacts might be affected. So that the projects have been initiated that require continuity. Obviously, you know, studies and so on require continuity. Um, and you know, th there are ideas about how to develop these things. And one of the, the workshops I was going to, which is interesting in relation to this thing about being a dictatorship, was actually on on community participation and decision making. Um, that discussion was a very open discussion. There was no censorship, if you like, in that discussion. And um, so those kind of things, they're, they're moving out, they're doing kind of social experiments and that sort of thing. So um, people are concerned, of course, you know, I come from a UK university, so our project won't be affected. I mean, in a way, if the US were to make it more difficult for, uni for American universities, then the Europeans and um, my own university would probably have greater potential to work with people. Um, so I suppose I have an interest in um, in that. But uh, I've also been talking to people um, in what I haven't yet managed on this trip to talk to people in government about this specific thing. Um, but at looking at the um, the economic effects, you can see their concerns will be in terms of um, the stimulus to tax tax receipts. I mean, the government has been benefiting in that way indirectly. And you can see some of that money has been put back into um, some work on improving the conditions of hospitals and schools and so on. So you can see that there would have to be a fiscal adjustment there. So I imagine that they're concerned about that. Um, and the other thing that I've heard from lots of people is, you know, people asking me, you know, what is the US going to do? And then we have a discussion about what could they could do, or what they might do, or what things. and and what today, specifically today, the issue is, is the degree of uncertainty about what happens tomorrow. I think that when the announcement is made, then people can respond to it. But at the moment, people are very kind of, um, you know, all of how they regard what's possible, what's going to be possible in the next year or so is, is conditional on, on uh, this announcement tomorrow. And Jose Miguel, I want to give you a chance to respond to what you might be hearing from a human rights perspective and, and, and have that be the last the last word of the of the call here. Yeah, no, look, this is, um, well, no, nobody knows the specifics of uh, what uh, um, the administration is going to announce um, apparently tomorrow. But this is, um, it's, uh, it's very unfortunate, it's very frustrating, and um, and our colleagues um, um, promoting and defending human rights in Cuba and outside Cuba um, pretty much agree that um, 
that uh, it's going to make make uh, much more difficult to expose the 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 uh, poor human rights record of the government because uh, most of the attention uh, will be uh, devoted to the uh, the new policy, which is actually the old uh, old policy of um, of sanctions and uh, indiscriminate sanctions against the Cuban people. And um, even if there is an effort to present that uh, this is uh, some sort of sanctions against the um, the military, uh, everybody knows uh, the relevance of the military, the army, in the Cuban economy, in um, all sort of activities, including obviously tourist uh, industry. So uh, in practical terms, it, it represents uh, you know, a smart um, uh, attempt to present this one as um, as targeted sanctions, but indeed are um, general sanctions against uh, the whole regime affecting the um, con living conditions of the, of the of, uh, of most of Cubans, and uh, and that is going to get uh, obviously a rejection um, uh, from uh, from the from the rest of the world as it happens during the more than half a century. So. Um, it's going to be much more. Uh, it will it will create additional obstacles in practical terms to um, to 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 promote to defend uh, human rights in Cuba and to and to um, to expose the record of that uh, of that government. Uh, the best approach to improve human rights conditions in Cuba is by again. Um, um, uh, eventually moving full speed ahead on the change of policy initiated by President Obama and, um, and adopting some sort of um, um, uh, multilateral comprehensive um, approach by democratic government's concerns with uh, the, the record of Cuba to press that regime for, um, um, for improvement in different areas, including labor rights, uh, free speech, political rights. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jose Miguel. I want to thank Thank you. I want to thank uh, Brigadier General McGinnis, who's uh, sitting next to me here, and, and Emily Morris from uh, from Havana for all of your excellent insight, and as well thank the uh, uh, 150 of you who who called in to listen to this call. Um, you know, when we first, as I mentioned from the outset, when we first uh, uh, the Adrian Arch Latin America uh, Center first started, we've seen since the outset U.S. Cuba policy as uh, as critical. Uh, for part of our mission and, and showing the transformations that's occurring in Latin America. Um, and from a perspective of, of the U.S.-Cuba policy has ramifications, we've talked about in this call, far beyond uh, just the bilateral, that those ramifications extend uh, hemispherically and, and, in fact, and in fact globally. So uh, we will continue to uh, uh, follow the source of information analysis as we, as we move forward here. So thank you all, all again for, for joining us today and look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.